Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would be planted deep down within, that you would pour your spirit upon us to water that word even more thoroughly to bring it into growth and to bring fruit from that word that you have given to us. Continually be at work in us by your spirit that we would be drawn ever nearer to Christ, that we would trust in what he has done and be more and more made into his image through Christ, we do pray. Amen. So you may have heard a couple of metaphors this morning, a couple of themes flowing out of our various passages. Three of them spoke about vineyards. Our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah is sometimes called, it's labeled in my Bible, as the vineyard of the Lord destroyed. It's the song of the vineyard after named after that first verse. Let me sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. Our psalm this morning mentions God bringing a, vin, a vine, a vineyard, a vine up out of Egypt and planting it in Israel. Our New Testament lesson, or our gospel lesson, Jesus speaks of an owner who makes a vineyard, builds it up, does everything, gives it everything that it needs, and then leases the land out to tenants who refuse to give him the fruit that it produces. These are deep metaphors about vineyards. The one that interests me the most is how it's described in Isaiah 5. That it talks about a vineyard that Yahweh created. He gave it everything that it needed, and yet it only produced wild grapes that were of no value. And so the vineyard owner, that is Yahweh, broke down and tore down the hedge of protection and let it be destroyed, let it be overrun. Of course, Isaiah reveals that that is Israel and Judah themselves, for they have turned from the Lord. They have done those things that were displeasing to him. They have turned against his law and abandoned faith in him. And so God let the Gentiles come in and ravage the land. Now there's another metaphor this morning. You may not have fully picked up on it because St. Paul doesn't come straight out and say what it is he's talking about. It's a hidden metaphor found in Philippians. And it flows out of Paul's words, I press on. He keeps coming back to that, I press on, I press on. That phrase, pressing on, it gives us a picture of a foot race, of people running a race down a track. And it's one that is already occurring, that's already in process, and we're all a part of this foot race. St. Paul, of course, is speaking in the first person, I press on to make it my own. I press on toward the goal. But what he says of himself, he intends to be applied to all of his readers. This foot race that we are on. A vineyard that Yahweh has planted. Those seem light years apart, don't they? What do these two metaphors have to do with each other? But they really are interconnected and interrelated. They intersect because of a single phrase from St. Paul today. In verse 12, 
He says, I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. St. Paul is able to press on in this race that he is on because Christ has made him his own. And likewise for us today, we who are baptized and have trusted in Christ are living in that reality that Christ has made us his own, that he has bought us and united himself to us. But who is Jesus? How does scripture describe Jesus? How does Jesus describe himself? Jesus is the true vine. He is the true vine that accomplishes that which Israel and Judah were unable to do. God desired fruit that lasts. And so Yahweh gave the law to lead and guide Israel to become a separate people, to be a light to the nations, and they failed in that. They only produced wild fruit. They only produced fruit that flowed out of their own broken hearts that refused to be renewed, that refused to see the brokenness within and to confess it and to turn to the Lord. They didn't produce fruit that lasts. Jesus, though, does. And Jesus becomes the true vine, the true Israel, the one who stands in place of all of Israel and accomplishes God's will. He produces fruit that lasts. You may be thinking the fruit that lasts, that he produces, is that his works here on earth, his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven? That's not the fruit I'm thinking of. The fruit that I'm thinking of is beyond all of that. It's beyond our dreaming. The fruit that he produces is us. He's the foundation upon which we are built. He is the true vine from which we grow out of. He is the vine that has laid hold of us all, that we have been united to, that we have been grafted into. He is the vine that has made us his own. And so these two metaphors collide with each other today. Christ, the true vine, and the race that we are running. They merge and intersect and create an astounding picture for us to take in and be awestruck by. Christ being the true vine enables us to become the fruit that can run the race set before us and so know our citizenship in heaven. You like that? A big old mixing of all the metaphors happening in our passages today. The true vine, the race, the fruit, the citizenship. All of this is ours in Christ because he is the true vine. I've explained a huge chunk of that already, that Christ is a true vine who replaces Israel who stands in for Israel. Actually, he doesn't replace Israel. He is who all of Israel was moving toward. God wasn't surprised that Israel would fail in their mission. He knew that they would fail in this mission. And yet, despite that failure, he preserved Israel well enough in order that the Messiah would arise from their ranks. That even in all their failures, even in them being dispersed, even in a huge number of Israelites being lost to the nations and just being absorbed into the Gentile races, Israel remained. And out of that stump, out of that stump that was left after the great oak of Israel was chopped down, a little sprout came up. And that sprout is Jesus, who will grow into an even greater, greater vine than what Israel could ever hope Sorry for bringing in another metaphor. 
But Israel failed, and Christ stands in their place now. They couldn't accomplish what God desired. Jesus can, and Jesus does, and Jesus will. He is that true vine who grows and embraces all the little bits of branches that aren't connected to anything. We, his branches, we, unconnected branches, get grafted into his vine. And through the strength that flows through his vine, through his power, the resurrection, his ascension, his forgiveness, his mercy, his compassion, we begin bearing fruit. But we are that very fruit also. Our being grafted in and becoming part of the vine means that we become the fruit of God. We become the fruit of Jesus. He produces us in one sense. We are grafted in in another sense. But either way, we are the fruit of Jesus, of his work. We grow out of who he is and what he has done for us. And so we are enabled to press on in this race because Jesus has made us his own. He's the true vine, therefore we belong to him. If we are attached to that vine, growing out of that vine, we belong to that vine. And so Paul says, I press on, I keep running, I keep pushing forward to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. And so now we're running the race before us. But what are we running for? Why are we running? What is it that Paul is talking about here that he's pressing on toward to make his own? He reveals that in the first part of this chapter where he talks about who he used to be. Where he talks about being a Pharisee. Where he talks about all the wonderful things that he has done. That he is the Hebrew among Hebrews. He has all the confidence in his flesh. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. As to his zeal, he persecuted the church for them not obeying the Pharisees' understanding of the law, for worshiping this man who claimed to be God. <laughs> Under the law, he was considered blameless. Not perfect, not unsinning, but blameless. You can be blameless under the Old Testament law in that sense because you have sacrifices that you can perform. You have sacrifices that you can give to cover over the sins that you've committed. The Day of Atonement being the greatest one that covers the sins of all the people. And so you can be blameless in a sense. But he was full of self-righteousness. He believed all of his strength was in himself. But now, for the sake of Christ, he counts all of that as rubbish. And so now he presses on to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, so that by any means possible, Paul may attain the resurrection from the dead. The thing that Paul is pursuing is resurrection. He's pursuing a renewal of his whole body. <clears throat> He's pursuing a renewal of all that he is. That is the race that he is running. He presses on into that, desiring that resurrection. He hasn't obtained it. He's not perfect. But he wants to obtain it. He wants to seek after that perfection. And he does it because Christ has made him his own. 
He knows that in Christ he has received all that he needs to pursue this resurrection. He trusts that in Christ all these promises have been given to him. The promise of resurrection, the promise of renewal. The promise of a totally new creation brought out of the old. Starting in himself. As he says in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in, of God in Christ Jesus. He runs the race before him, and he doesn't look back at the past. He's not looking back at what he has accomplished. He's not looking back to his life prior to being a Christian and all the good that he did, his self-righteous life. He's not even looking back at the good deeds he's accomplished in Christ. He doesn't even look back at that. He knows that he has done what Christ has called him to do up to this point, but he's not looking back at those things and resting in those things. He's resting in the reality that he belongs to Jesus and presses on toward the goal. Even a casual runner will realize that if you look back while you're running, that you're going to lose speed. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall down when you look back over your shoulder and you quit staying focused on what's coming ahead. And that's the point that Paul is making here, that if he looks back, if he looks back and worries about the good deeds he's committed, the sins he's committed, all that stuff, if he worries about those things after his forgiveness, after his confession, then he's going to stumble and fall to the ground because his eyes won't be looking toward Jesus anymore. They won't be looking at who he belongs to. They won't be straining toward that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what he's moving toward, that upward call, that ultimate resurrection from the dead. The desire to be changed inwardly and outwardly. But unlike a regular foot race, where the goal is to gain the prize that you only receive at the end of the race, you only get the prize at the end. In the race that we run as Christians, we get the prize at the beginning, throughout, and at the end. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus is that calling to faith, that calling to trust in Christ, that calling into salvation. The application of the promises of God to each of us individually. And that application calls us to faith. It calls us to Jesus. For some of us that began at baptism, where we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, where we are then called into salvation according to that called to faith. The Holy Spirit coming and dwelling with us, planting the word in us, growing up in the church and being watered with that word to grow and to press on toward that upward call. And then each moment of faith is a response to that goal of that prize, is a response of receiving that prize little by little, more and more as you go and go. Others of us, first received that call later in life and came to faith when we heard the gospel proclaimed, when we heard about forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, when we heard that we could be forgiven of all the wrongs that we've done, that we could be changed and renewed and redeemed by this man named Jesus who died on our behalf. We received the upward call. We received the prize for we received salvation in both of those moments. And then we are called to then live in that salvation by living in faith. 
To turn away from that faith is to not receive that salvation. We are called into that to walk by faith, trusting in God's promises, trusting that the upward call is being applied over and over, day in and day out, as we are looking toward the goal of that prize. And when we reach the finish line, whether in death or mostly primarily at the resurrection of Jesus, we will receive the fullness of that upward call by being resurrected from the dead, being given new bodies that are purified, that have had the sin stripped from them. The earth itself will be renewed and made into the new creation. And we will have that finality. We will have that final prize. And we'll have received the fullness of the upward call of God. And Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if you think in anything otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We have attained Christ taking hold of ourselves. That's the foundation. He is divine of which we grow out of, that we are the fruit that comes from him. If you have other thoughts about these things, you might be wrong. So keep seeking after Christ, and God will reveal and open your eyes and lead you into deeper maturity. Never assume that because you've grown and matured some in your faith that you've matured all that you need to mature, Paul is saying. Continue to move forward in that maturity by pursuing Christ, by assuming that you are not perfect yet, that you haven't obtained everything that you need. And press on in this race to make the resurrection your own, because Christ has made you his own. And so we keep running this race before us, and we, and we don't look back. Yes, we will sin, and yes, we will confess those sins, but then we move forward. To confess sin is not looking back, is to continue forward in the faith. If we don't confess that sin and it continues to dog after us, it will take, cause us to look back and to take our eyes off Jesus and to fall and stumble. But to confess the sin is to take our eyes off the sin and to put it back on Jesus because we're saying, we need your forgiveness, Jesus. I need your forgiveness to remove this sin from me. And to give me the strength to resist this sin and to continue looking towards you and running this race because this sin can overtake me and cause me to stumble and turn away from the path that you've placed me on. Confession is good for the heart. Confession is not looking back, but looking forward toward Jesus, toward that upward call. And all of this leads us to the last few verses of Philippians. That Christ being the vine makes us the fruit, enables us to run a race set before us toward that upward call, which means and is citizenship in heaven that we have right now. Skipping ahead a few verses to verse 20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul tells us to imitate him and to look to others who are faithful for imitation, to know how to walk, not because they're doing such wonderful good deeds, but if they're like Paul, they're looking to Jesus. They're striving forward in the faith. They're striving forward in the Christian life because they know Jesus has made them his own. 
And so Paul says to them, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He and his fellow apostles that are with him as he's writing. He and the fellow ministers that are with him as he's writing. Imitate Paul and imitate these men, these others, because they are looking to Christ. They know that Christ has made them his own, and so they are pressing on and pursuing Christ. Because it gets hard running this race, trying to look toward Jesus and not having anyone alongside you that can help lead and be an example and guide you. To cut yourself off from the fellowship of the church is to cut yourself off from Christ ultimately because you will quit looking to Christ. The church helps you. The fellowship of believers helps you to continue pursuing Jesus. They pray for you. They lift you up. They fellowship with you. They give you opportunity to pray with one another. For Paul says, many of whom I have often told you and now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They abandoned the faith. They walked away for selfish gain. And their end will be destruction if they don't return. They glory in their shame. The God, their God is their belly. They set their minds on earthly things, Paul says. Set your eyes on those who are pursuing Christ so that you don't end up with these others, so that you don't end up walking away from the faith. Look to the example of others who are following after Jesus as hard as they can to help you follow Jesus as hard as you can. And we will know our citizenship in heaven, a citizenship that is right now also. For we are united to Christ, and if Christ is in heaven, we too are in heaven with him mysteriously in union with him, and we here on earth also wait for him to return. We await that Savior to come down from heaven and transform our lowly bodies. We keep looking at the example of those who are pursuing Christ, looking toward Christ, knowing that he is the center of all things and we know our citizenship is in heaven and that Christ will return and transform us completely. He will make our body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. The power of Christ can subject all of creation and he uses that power to transform us in the end. He has transformed us inwardly that we might know him, that we might trust in him, that we would be his fruit. And he will transform us outwardly in the end. That our fruit, that us being his fruit will be made fully manifest, that we will be given a glorious body like his. And so Paul concludes, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord. All of this is to encourage us to stand firm, all centering on that phrase, Jesus Christ has made me his own. We belong to Jesus. We are the fruit of Jesus himself because he is the true vine and enables us to run this race and know our citizenship so that we can wait for him to come and fully transform us. And yes, this is a lot of mixed metaphors, but these are the metaphors set before us today that vine and that fruit that Yahweh desires, that he gets from Jesus. The reality that as the fruit of Christ, we are on a, in a race toward him, toward resurrection. And we can pursue that because we belong to Jesus. 
We belong to Jesus. And so we press on as his fruit, bearing fruit for him. Living a life of faith in all areas of our life. Submitting to him. Giving over to him ourselves because he gave himself for us. We belong to him always. And as we live in faith, we know his ownership of us. We know his power in us as we walk in faith. As we walk along and trust and pursue this race and press on despite all the obstacles that can knock us down. Looking forward toward Jesus is our calling. And so we can stand firm in the Lord because we are looking toward Jesus. We are looking toward him owning us. We are looking toward the fact that he has laid hold of us for himself and enables us to press on in this race. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.